Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Dr. James Brousseau, author and philosopher at Pace University, New York City. We talk about wealth distribution, equality and inequality, freedom, as well as the work by George Bataille on the accused share. You can check out all the links and resources and books mentioned in this episode at economicrockstar.com forward slash James Brousseau. That's B-R-U-S-S-E-A-U. And you can find a back catalogue to all the podcast episodes at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. Cigarettes or brainstorming or wars, all of these belong to what, what Bataille calls a general economy, and all of them produce an accursed share, a reality where we have too much, not too little of something, and it leads to problems in the world. Hi, Frank Comer here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Dr. James Brousseau join me today. Hi, James. Welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Dr. James Brousseau is a philosopher specializing in contemporary continental philosophy, history of philosophy, and ethics. In 1994, James joined faculty of philosophy and lectures at the Mexican National University in Mexico City, teaching graduate courses in philosophy and comparative literature. He is also taught in Europe and at California State University. Dr. James Brousseau is currently teaching at Pace University in New York City. He is the author of four books, Isolated Experiences, Decadence of the French Nietzsche, Empire of Humiliation, and Business Ethics Workshop. He's also the host of for the Wealth Inequality Workshop at wealthinequalityworkshop.org, and you can find the work by James at jamesbrousseau.net. Hi, James. Um, I'm very interested in the work that you do, especially coming from a philosophical angle in terms of your understanding and interpretation of economics and also your influences that you have. Um, Let me start with the Wealth Inequality Workshop, if you don't mind, that you have. Sure. You come from it in terms of philosophy and ethics regarding wealth and its distribution. How different would that be from an economics perspective, even though when we look back on the works of Adam Smith, he was front and foremost a philosopher who spoke about wealth as well? Certainly, definitely try. I think, though, uh, that even though there's quite a bit of overlap, uh, between the way economists, especially those who are trained in sort of the history of economics, uh, talk and, uh, philosophers talk. I think that there are some you know, pretty clear lines that can be drawn. Um, one of those lines would be something like an assumption. I think that, uh, economists assume, uh, that, so, that economic growth or wealth in and of itself is, is positive. Um, that that's sort of the end in a certain sense of a, a well-regulated economic system. Um, I don't think, I hope, at least, uh, that philosophers don't have anything against that. Uh, but we don't tend to start from that kind of perspective. We tend to start um, from uh, ethical values when we discuss wealth distribution. And traditionally, uh, the two values from which we start uh, are those of equality on one side and freedom on the other. Um, and then when we discuss this issue, uh, the, the kinds of assumptions that we begin with um, are we will either take one side or the other. 
Um, it's, it's, that is, there's a, a bit of a misconception sometimes when I hear uh, people discuss this issue uh, in terms of equality and freedom that they imagine that these two uh, values or these two ways of seeing the world, that is the idea that we should privilege equality in the economic world or, by contrast, we should privilege freedom. Um, sometimes when people talk about that, they talk about them as though those two values are in conflict. That's not quite right for us. Um, instead, we start from the idea that either we will privilege equality and then see how that value actually works in the world, or on the other side, we will privilege freedom. Um, so our debates in philosophy and ethics are sort of multi-level debates, right? We have people exploring along the freedom line and along the equality line. Uh, and the people have completely different assumptions when they come from one side or the other. And that's part of the reason now to sort of wrap this up. Uh, that's part of the reason, uh, I believe, in, in normal conversations sometimes. It seems like debates about wealth and equality or wealth distribution uh, don't go anywhere. They, they can't go anywhere. Because the people are departing from different intellectual or ethical premises, right? That is the one part, one side will begin from the idea that what we're looking for is some kind of equality. And the other side will begin from the idea that what we're looking for is some kind of freedom. And then these two sides, they can't engage. Um, so part of what I, we're trying to do with this project is we're trying to set out clearly what these two ways of thinking about wealth distribution are. Um, not so much that, so that we can decide between them or aim people one way or the other but instead so we can clarify uh, what kinds of premises and what kinds of um, commitments are being made when people approach the idea of wealth and equality from one side or the other. And then, as I say, all that would kind of separate, I believe, from uh, an economic an economic approach uh, in the sense that an economist would assume from the beginning that what we're looking for is some kind of growth and maximum wealth overall. And when you talk about equality, on freedom, are you talking about it in more of a moral or would it be more in financial terms? Well, I think that it, uh, excellent question, right? I think that you can come at it in, in both in both senses, but uh, in this particular workshop, because we're trying to make things very practical, uh, we are talking about in financial terms, right? Um, but even so, it's, it's not so easy. There, we could think about equality in terms of wealth, but we could also think about equality in terms of opportunity. Right? So, so just from the start, um, the, the questions become very hairy and complex. But uh, stepping back from that, what I can say is that in general, well, we're beginning from the idea that when we think about equality and when we're asking about a society in terms of wealth distribution and equality, uh, we're asking, first of all, whether or not it's possible to imagine a society where everyone has equal wealth. And then if it's not, and it, I believe it is not, uh, then what other kinds of theories can we use to distribute wealth which preserve this idea of equality even while recognizing that inequality is going to function? Um, and that would be in terms of the simple, in the simplest terms, in terms of the amount of money that people have in their bank accounts. And just thinking on what level of equality or inequality is acceptable, would this thinking be, it's not new, it's not new thinking at all. And is it a, is there a possibility that a society could have been created intentionally to have a certain level of inequality? Because you also talk about freedom as well. And if you're talking about financial equality, obviously, or perhaps uh, you might refer to financial freedom too. And to have financial freedom, I believe you might have to have a different wealth distribution. 
Uh, I'm, I'm not certain that that's, that that's true, curiously. Um, but going back to the equality side, I, I think that it is true. Um, that even if you try to set up a perfectly equal society, that society, society would not be sustainable. Um, here's kind of a, uh, thought experiment, which is frequently run through in this, um, when this discussion begins on the side of equality. Um, we can imagine, let's just imagine that we've decided we're going to build a society and our highest value, that is that we are going to orient everything that happens in the society, at least economically, um, around the idea of equality. So what's the society going to look like? Probably we're going to start out with having everybody living in the same size apartment and getting every week, say, the same bundle of necessities and luxuries and so on. And so everyone will live identically, right? I, I think in that from that scenario, we can say, look, we have an equal society. But then the question we have to ask is, is this sustainable? Uh, and probably it isn't for the following reason. Um, let's just imagine that we, you and I live next to each other in one of these buildings. Uh, and you really like chocolate and I really like wine. And every week we get in our in our bag, we get a, in our resource bag, we get a bit of chocolate and a bit of wine. Well, of course, it's not going to be long before we figure out Let's trade. I'll give you my chocolate. You give me your wine. Uh, this is called a, a Pareto efficiency in economic terms. Um, because what's happening now is, is very curious in philosophical terms. What's happening now is that you and I are better off than we were before, right? I have more of my wine that I like so much, and you have more of your chocolate. But nobody has gone backwards, uh, right? No one has, no one has lost. Uh, it's just that you and I are better off. In this situation, however, even though no one has gone backwards, it remains true that you and I are better off than everybody else. We must be because we started out equally, and now you and I, because of our exchange, we're in a better position. Right? So if that reality happens on the one side and on the other, we insist upon maintaining this equality that we started out with, then one of the following two things must be done. We must either forbid free exchange, that is, we can't let you and I uh, change wine for chocolate, or on the other hand, we must forbid different um, uh, desires or wants, right? We can't allow that you want chocolate more than wine, and I want wine more than chocolate. One of those two things has to be prohibited. Otherwise, equality is going to collapse. But even if we do that now, and this wraps up the argument, that even if we do that now, if we're going to prohibit either different desires or free exchange, then we're going to need someone to enforce that. And those enforcers, by definition, because they're getting their way and you and I aren't, those enforcers are above us. So no matter what, how we try to arrange this equal society, it seems like it's going to come apart as long as it's true that individuals are fundamentally different, and I believe we are. So so when people talk about equality in terms of philosophy and ethics, they usually start right around that point. And they say, we're going to value equality, and we want equality, but we can see that it can't work correctly. So we've got to find some other theory or some other way of holding the society together in a way that maximizes equality in terms of either bank accounts or resources, wealth, and so on. What you were explaining there, I had a, a thought that perhaps this has 
an ex- this would have been played out in not in t- in terms of an experiment, but perhaps in say for example prisons or the school where kids might have their lunches and they may have different lunches, but you might see this social equality or inequality play out or Pareto efficiency being played out when kids end up swapping. But the authority could be like the government who are the teachers or whoever supervising the kids at the time that might prevent the exchange happening. Have you come have done or have come across any examples whereby a situation was created and that all participants would have been perhaps seen as equal and then see how this played out in a in a type of economy or an economic system. Well, you see, this is one of the great things about being a philosopher. I'm so happy I chose this career line because I am not burdened by those kinds of requirements, right? I mean, for people who work in economics or uh, your recent guest who was doing uh, social psychology, uh, right, they're burdened by some kind of need for empirical proof. You've got to go out in the world and see how these things work. But, you know, the truth is I, I have not imagined this work. Rather, I have imagined it, but I have not imagined actually applying it or trying to see how it will work experimentally in the world because that's just not the way the way philosophers operate, right? It's an advantage and a disadvantage of our pursuit. Um, but it does it is quite convenient because it allows us to move rapidly from one step to another of our of our thinking. But to answer your question, no, I haven't actually seen in the world uh, this kind of thing working. I, I remember just, I remember very briefly, this is just sort of from my, when I was a graduate student, uh, I was working on a French philosopher, Gilles Deleuze, and uh, he uh, had a kind of an interesting or curious reading of, of schizophrenia. Uh, and he used it, used the definition quite liberally to make several different philosophical claims. And so I was sort of hot on this subject and very excited, writing a paper and all. And I went over to the psychology department. I asked the uh, one of the professors there who was an expert in this. I started spilling out my Deleuzian ideas about uh, schizophrenia and so on. And he listened to me for about five minutes and then sort of paused and looked me eye in the eye and he said, have you ever actually seen a schizophrenic? <laughs> I had to admit, no, I had. So in any case, uh, that's kind of the way philosophers are. We we do tend to, to jump over that concrete stuff. It's a luxury and a, a burden too, I suppose. So one of your books, The Decadence of the French Nietzsche, is... This is what you mean by decadent philosophy, whereby you do theoretical. No, no, I don't think so. I think that that's. I think that's the way philosophy is. I think that if you trace um, all political philosophy, at least all of it that is coming to mind, with the possible exception of some someone like Adam Smith or so on, I think that generally we are quite theoretical and abstract. I think that the book Decadence of the French Nietzsche has quite a different meaning. Uh, has to do with the way that philosophical concepts are created by corrupting or perverting ideas that are inside of a certain thinker. But that, that would lead us far off the path of where we're going, actually. Yeah, I'd like to take you, to, um, take us back to the Wealth Inequality Workshop, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, please. Yeah, uh, when you talk about the, the philosophy and ethics of wealth and its distribution, mm-hmm. you mentioned at the opening of the video, which I link up, uh, the, the documentary, I link it up on the show notes page, um, you talk about the theoretical equality and the sacrifices and compromises of wealth equality in the real world. So yeah. we, you mentioned a theoretical situation where you might have a couple of scenarios and you created one of them for us where everybody would have an equal, you know, resources or resource pack. They live in the same type of environment and then you might have a Pareto efficient outcome. 
But what sacrifices or compromises do we have to make in order to lead us toward wealth equality? Or is that even an optimal outcome for society? Well, right. So let me take the second question first, the the optimal outcome. Um, I, I think that for somebody who promotes the notion of equality is the highest value, by definition, the best the best or most or most robust equality you can find is the optimum outcome. Whereas by contrast, if you start from freedom, then you would say you want to maximize freedom. Um, so that's the, so that's the answer to the first question, the notion about what the optimum out, outcome would be. If you start from the value of equality, that's where you want to go. Um, then with respect to how sacrifices that have to be made, um, one of the things that we do in that documentary is we start out with this, um, this scenario in which we have the resource pack, which is equal. It doesn't work. So what other kinds of, um, versions of, of theories of equality can we put forth? Uh, and there are two principal theories that are, that, uh, have been advocated traditionally within philosophical circles. Uh, one of those belongs to an American philosopher named John Rawls. Uh, the other traces back to, uh, the English school of utilitarianism. I will, I will start with John Rawls. His idea is, he says, look, uh, we can't make straight equality work in the world. But, he says, I want equality to, to be maximized. So what can I do? He says the following. He says, the way we should distribute resources in society is so that they always end up, any advance or any increase in wealth always ends up giving maximum advantage to the least advantaged. In other words, um, to put this in, in more uh, conventional language, what John Rawls says is uh, he doesn't mind a little bit of wealth inequality as long as the poorest of the poor are not left behind. Um, so, so, so something like this, a scenario like this would, like this would be, um, sometimes people talk about a kind of a war scenario where a group of soldiers, there's an injured comrade and they need to retreat. Um, the question is, well, do they wait for their, or do they all, do they run away leaving their injured comrade behind or, or do they jeopardize themselves by trying to carry their injured comrade out? Um, what John Rawls says is, look, um, we can't have the kind of inequality where we leave the injured or the poverty stricken, let's say, behind. Um, we have to wait for the poorest of the poor in society. So, um, kind of wrapping this up, the version of equality that Rawls proposes is he says, look, we have to have some inequality in society. That's fine. But we need to also make sure that every time we have a, a kind of economic advance, those who benefit significantly or perhaps most, are the poorest of the poor. And if that requirement is not fulfilled, then no one gets to advance. That That's Rawls's fundamental position. So we can't have Bill Gates getting extraordinarily wealthy unless he can show us that his, um, let's say, Microsoft Windows or what have you, unless he can show us that the innovations he has created to become wealthy help not only you and I in the middle class, but they also help the poorest of the poor. Um, and it's it's not clear to me uh, that in our contemporary society that the poorest of the poor are, in fact, aided by something like Microsoft Windows. So, um, so let me stop there for a moment and say that's the theory. Um, what I could add to that then is the problem with this theory, people who don't like it, what they don't like is this this possibility that we end up in a kind of dictatorship of the poverty stricken. That is, if 
people like Bill Gates are not allowed to innovate, not allowed to create products and then wealth for themselves unless there's a benefit for the poorest of the poor. Then, curiously, those who wield the most power in this society and those who are able to actually hold everyone else up are the least fortunate or the poverty stricken. So there's a kind of a threat here, but again, a dictatorship of the poverty stricken, which is a sort of curious outcome for um, uh, kind of a theory that wants to start with the idea that we're going to uh, valorize and try to reach equality. Are there any kind of economies that practice this type of thinking? Well, I think, you know, to, to a certain extent, I was, uh, just as you were running through the in some of the schools at, at which I've taught, um, I, I've had the fortune, I believe, uh, to uh, live in some places where where wealth is distributed in very different ways. Um, Mexico, where I live for about a decade or so, um, in a certain sense, that's a pure free economy, uh, which I can talk about maybe in the future a bit. Um, but I think that uh, to, a, to a significant extent, I think that, that the European economy, though – I'm thinking of Spain and the Mediterranean countries, France, Spain. Um, uh, to a significant extent, I think that those are difference principle or roles kinds of economies. What I mean by that is that the welfare state in Europe, in my personal experience, obviously you know more about it than I do, but in my personal experience, uh, the welfare state in those Mediterranean countries, in the attempt to guarantee uh, a sort of basic livelihood for more or less every citizen. Uh, there are so many rules and regulations that are imposed upon people, especially I'm thinking, I remember when I was working in France, I marveled at the fact that no matter what an employee did, he or she could not be fired, right? Um, so the state imposes these rules to try to guarantee a kind of minimal condition for um, individuals in the society, and they also very generous unemployment and health care and so on. Uh, but one problem with that is, uh, that the society becomes so inflexible um, that it becomes very difficult for people to to innovate. Um, if here in here in New York City, where I live now, uh, New York City is just full of European expatriates who who've come here because they want to be able to create companies or create some kind of professional destiny uh, free of these kinds of regulations. So I think that to a certain extent, you could say that the Mediterranean states, at least Ireland, might be a bit different, but the Mediterranean states, European states are a little bit like examples of what we're talking about here. States where there's almost a dictatorship of the least advantaged, um, where the, the endeavor is so great to preserve the welfare of the poorest uh, that the wealthiest end up being caged by, by this generosity. So I, I guess I would use that as an example, the Mediterranean states of Europe. So this generosity that's created in order to help the poorest of the poor, uh, is this where the governments might have to step in and say tax the the wealthier companies or individuals in order to redistribute wealth because what happens with taxes is there, as we know there are tax loopholes and uh, offshore accounts and then we end up kind of distributing the tax burden on other people who say are the middle class or the lower class. Well, I think I, yeah, I think that's right. I think that on the practical level, it seems like there are some holes in the ideal. But I would still want to maintain my original point that uh, I think that the the intellectual model that governs, uh, I'm thinking again, especially of Spain and France, and the intellectual uh, model that governs regulation is one in which the decision has been made, and in order to 
do the best we can to guarantee equality, we are going to hold the most innovative members of our society hostage to the needs of those who are uh, the poorest or the least advantaged in terms of education and so on. Um, and, and the way that the, ho- the, 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 the that imposition works is through regulations and taxes and so on. As you say, it might not be perfect, but I think it does function. My sense is it does function that way. That's, that's certainly the story that I hear from um, a number of – I happen to be married to a European, a Spaniard. Um, and that's certainly the story that I hear from uh, the Spaniards who are flowing across the Atlantic to work here. And would people tend to value equality more than freedom? Or what would Raoul's opinion or even your own opinion be on that one? Right. Um, first, I would say that but Rawls certainly values equality. That's why he does what he does. Um, and then I would say more generally uh, that in this project, the Wealth and Equality uh, Workshop Project, what we're trying to do is show charitably um, and generously uh, both which is to sort of march through the way you could come at the issue from one side or from the other. Um, as for as for me personally, I, um, I I think it's fair that I sort of give away my bias to the extent there is one. Um, I would be I'm sort of a I suppose they call me an uh, anarchist capitalist. Um, so I tend to value uh, freedom more than equality. But again, the workshop as we present it is certainly not tilted. At least we hope it's not. Uh, tilted one way or the other. Instead, we're trying to run through and show in the most generous and powerful terms that we can muster you know, what it looks like to think about the world economically and inequality in terms of the value of equality and, by contrast, in terms of the value of freedom. Recently on an episode with Denise Cummins, we spoke about fairness in economics. And I'd love to be able to talk to you briefly about philosophical thinking on fairness and how it might be applied to an economic system. Right. I listened to that. Um, We have two sort of general um, ways of thinking about, uh, thinking about fairness. I think that I will say just quickly as a footnote uh, that for those uh, who want to come at the question of wealth and its distribution in terms of individual and human freedom and liberty um, for that group, the question of fairness itself is not terrifically pressing. Um, instead, there's there, there's the there's it, it's much more quantitative. There's the idea that we want to maximize freedom. Um, but going back to, to the equality side, uh, it's on that side where fairness tends to um, draw more attention. And there are two mainstream ways of thinking about fairness. Uh, one belongs to Aristotle, and the other belongs to uh, Rawls, who we just talked about. Uh, Aristotle's definition is sort of deceptively simple. Uh, it is fairness is defined for Aristotle as treating equals equally and unequals unequally. <laughs> so, <Good one. laughs> right, well, so, so then you ask, okay, so what does that mean? I mean, in, in economic terms, we, there's the whole gamut. You can run from one side to the other. Um, you could say, look, uh, if you and I are uh, adult human beings, that is, we're equals, then you and I should be treated equally. That means you and I should have the same wealth. By contrast, you could say just as easily, well, wait a minute now. Um, if you work 80 hours a week and I work 40 hours a week, then we're unequals and we should be treated unequally. In other words, your wealth should be twice as great as mine. Or again, you could say if, if well, imagine that your talent 
you have some tremendous talent, which is 10 times greater than my talent. Uh, well, then in that case, we are, again, unequals and should be treated unequally, and you should have 10 times the talent I have. Um, so um, it's kind of hard to know exactly what treat equals equally and unequals unequally is going to mean in any specific case. Um, but that's one way that we think about fairness. Um, the other way that we think about fairness is in terms of uh, something called the veil of ignorance. Uh, and this definition is, is slightly different. The definition of fairness here is that any decision you make is fair if you don't know how that decision will affect you in the end. That's why it's called a veil of ignorance. That is, you need to make the decision without knowing how you will be affected. So a simple example of this would be, uh, you might, I'm not sure in Ireland how things work, but I remember when I was young, uh, sometimes I would go after school and get a slice of pizza with friends, and maybe I only had enough money for half a slice, and so I would find a friend, and the two of us would together buy one slice, and what we would do is, one person would cut the slice in half, and the other person would choose the side. Right? Well, that's Rawls's fairness. Right? That's fairness in the sense, that's the veil of ignorance. I make a cut, and I don't know which side I'm going to get. Therefore, and this is the curious part, no matter how I make the cut, it doesn't matter if I cut it evenly or unevenly or what have you, no matter how I make the cut, it's a fair cut. Why? Because, again, I don't know how that cut will affect me. And then moving this over just very quickly in, in one minute, um, you can apply this to the question of wealth distribution very easily. You can say, look, let's, you can imagine what Rawls would say is you can imagine society and the distribution of wealth within it any way you like. He doesn't care as long as you're willing to accept the following deal. Uh, once you've got that society envisioned, you get shaken up and thrown back into that society at some place that you do not anticipate or some place you don't know beforehand, right? So let's say that just hypothetically, let's imagine that I say, well, the U.S. society today has the perfect distribution of wealth. That's fine as long as I'm willing to take the odds that go with my being shaken up and then getting thrown back into this society, perhaps not as a philosophy professor, but instead as a mailman in Nebraska or what have you. I don't know beforehand where I'm going to be. Um, but if I'm willing to take those odds, then whatever decision I make is fair. So that's two very different ways of thinking about fairness. And it's also quite different. They're both quite different than the way you talked about with the, uh, the I believe she was a social psychologist uh, last. Denise, yeah. um, when we were communicating by email recently, you mentioned, I, I hope I get the name pronounced correctly, or you might, yeah. you might uh, check it out for me. Is it George Bataille? Bataille is correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. George Bataille's theory of the accursed share. And it's something I've never come across before until you mentioned it to me. And I kind of explored it a little in preparation for this interview or discussion with you. And he wrote a book called The Accursed Share, an essay on general economy. And it's something right. that you said you'd like to maybe touch on. And I, I'd, I'd like that actually, if, um, if it fits with the type of thinking we're, we're discussing now. But, could you explain to us what the accursed share is? Right. The, the, accursed, uh, the, the accursed share is, is something like the following. Um, traditionally, uh, philosophers uh, have believed that uh, desire is something you have because you have too little of something. Um, so you think, for example, well, why do I want food? It's because my stomach is empty, right? I need to fill up my stomach. And once my stomach is filled, I will no longer have 
hunger, right? So we have this general idea, and this is a vision you can have of humanity itself, right? You have a general idea uh, that humanity is less than perfect, less than we could be, inferior to our optimal or, or excellent state, right? And then our task here in the world uh, is to fill ourselves up or to reach, to uh, to fill our imperfections, to fill in our imperfections, to make ourselves complete, and then we will be happy. Just like when I'm hungry for food, I eat the food and I'm satisfied. Um, what Bataille says is, you know what? Uh, there's a different way of thinking about imperfection. Uh, it's not that we are imperfect because we have too little. Instead, it's that we're imperfect because we have too much. Um, and then this traces back, you can find this, this traces back to, uh, to Dante, um, in his Inferno. You might remember that Cerberus, the dog that guards the gates to hell. Uh, one thing that's curious about this dog is that the, the more it eats, the hungrier it gets, right? That's why it's such a good watchdog, right? Uh, so Bataille's kind of going along those lines and he's saying, look, I mean, is it possible that we're in a situation, um, existentially and, and economically? Uh, where we are imperfect, we're unhappy or unsatisfied, not because we have too little, but because we have too much. Um, and then he would go on and say, in our attempts to make ourselves perfect, therefore, uh, because we have too much, only make things worse. Right? The, hung- the more we eat, the hungrier we get. Um, and then a simple example that I used, kind of a common everyday example of something like this, would be something like a, a good brainstorming session uh, when you get together with uh, some colleagues to hash out an idea. Uh, if it's a good brainstorming session, uh, one person will have one good idea and that will lead to two more good ideas from someone else and then two more and four more and eight more. And it's kind of curious that a, a really good brainstorming session, instead of yielding an idea that leads to something you can do, it makes the situation worse because now you have so many good ideas. Uh, that you're even more uh, uh, paralyzed than you were before, right? So there's this idea that uh, we can be imperfect because we have too much. Now, what does this have to do with 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 the economy? What Bataille says, curiously, is that our traditional marketplace economy, far from being insufficient, far from not providing our needs, our traditional marketplace economy is more than satisfying our needs. We are too perfect. We are beyond satisfaction. We are imperfect in our attempts to, to make ourselves satisfied, um, just make the situation worse. And he says, we can explain specific sociological phenomena in these terms. For example, for Bataille, he says the reason that we have wars is not because there's competition between uh, empires for land or not because there is some uh, dictator has risen to power and wants to expand his or her influence. No. What Bataille says is the reason we have wars is because we need to expend this extra wealth we have, this wealth which is too much, which is more than perfect. And that part, that extra part, that's what he calls the accursed share. Um, it's when you have too much of something which is good. And then bringing this, I can quickly kind of bring this back into um, the question of wealth inequality and the idea of freedom. Uh, the way that applies to the idea of freedom is, uh, and this is exactly what happens in Mexico. Um, in the, in Mexico, uh, this is a very liberal and free society economically. But the problem they have there is, is not that people have too little freedom. Instead, they have too much freedom. 
In fact, the freedom is so much that it ends up weighing down and destroying the economy um, in ways I could talk about. But but that's what the, the accursed share is the idea uh, that we need to reverse the way we think about our relation with perfection. It's not that we're less than perfect. It's that we're more than perfect. It's not that we have too too little. Instead, we have too much. And that leads to a kind of destruction of, of oneself. Another very quick example, and then I will, <laughs> I will turn it back, um, would be something like cigarettes. Um, think about if you smoke one cigarette today, then you will have the desire to smoke two tomorrow and four the next day and so on. Anyone who smokes cigarettes knows what this is like uh, and, and what happens. Well, eventually you smoke so many cigarettes that you rot out your lungs. So it's the desire to smoke that de- cigarettes, which destroys your ability to smoke cigarettes, uh, because you've had t- you're, you've had too many cigarettes. You're beyond perfect. Um, so those are different examples. There's cigarettes, or brainstorming, or wars. All of these belong to what a co- what Bataille calls a general economy, and all of them produce an accursed share, a reality where we have too much, not too little of something, and it leads to problems in the world. And this is something we generally wouldn't come across in economic textbooks because. It seems to defy the thinking and the the principles of economics based on the ideas of scarcity, uh, utility, maximizations, uh, satisfaction, and so on. So where where does like he calls it the generally economics as opposed to restricted economics, right? And what you were saying there, and um, what he has written about, it it does make sense, especially when we're talking about consumption of data on social media. Right. There's a huge spike and and people just want to consume and consume all this nonsense, ridiculous information. And and then what Bataille would say is this design, this, we are imperfect in the sense that we have more information about either companies or what our friends are doing or what have you, right? Then, then we, then we need to be perfect. And in our endeavor to get back to some perfect state, we just add more and more information, which makes the situation even worse. Uh, and that will lead, according to Bataille, inevitably, to some kind of a cursed share, some kind of breakdown in the system. For, for some reason, I don't know what the reason would be, but that would be the way Bataille would analyze this. Like, w- would there be similarities with, say, food mountains over supply of agricultural produce? And that ends up being wasted? Uh, I- I, I I think there would be, yes. I think that does make sense to me when I, I would have to think about it. These things, you kind of want to let them settle in your mind a little bit um, generally. But it, as you say that, it, it seems consonant with what, what with what I understand of Bataille. Um, and then, as I say, kind of bringing this back to the notion of, uh, of, of wealth inequality, what, um, what Bataille sees in the idea of human freedom um, in the marketplace uh, is that let's imagine that we start out with the idea that we want to establish a world where we don't care about wealth, wealth equality or inequality. All we care about is maximizing individual freedom. That is the ability for you and I to go out in the economic world and other worlds, but in the economic world and make ourselves, create ourselves as we want to be, right? Now, we may want to create ourselves as marvelously wealthy barons of industry, or we may want to create ourselves in some different way. But for people who want to uh, begin from the idea uh, that freedom is the highest goal of the marketplace, um, the, the the fear that we have uh, is that freedom could fall into a kind of battalion trap. Uh, that is, that we could have so much freedom that freedom ends up rupturing or destroying itself. 
I, I can kind of give you an example, an example of, uh, from Mexico. I remember this, this quite well. But one of the things that we did uh, down there is I was uh, involved with a, a group of people, and we pooled some money and would buy buildings. And there was architects and engineers and a bunch. Uh, and we remodeled the buildings. And I remember when the inspectors would come by. Uh, as they would do every week or so, uh, and they would always, of course, find something. Uh, we would ask them very simply to give us the sheet of paper where they had written down the violation. Uh, one of us would pull out a 500 peso note, that's about 50 bucks, uh, fold it into the paper, hand it back to the guy, and that was it. He was gone. Um, one, of the, one of the results of this uh, in Mexico is it, terrific and be- one of the great beauties of the country uh, is that uh, architecture is completely unrestricted. Um, and I think this is part of the reason why there's so many good Mexican architects, like Barragón, like Garota, and others who are flowing into the United States now. Um, you can do whatever you want. There are no restrictions. I remember some marvelous and wacky homes that were built in the middle of residential neighborhoods that you could never get close to doing in any neighborhood in the United States. Uh, be, why? Because you just pay off the, you just pay off the inspector. So you maximize, Mexico is a place where freedom maximizes. Um, however, however, it's also a place where, to a certain extent, freedom gets out of control. Um, and those people who are, who are capable and who are innovative and the, who are industrious and uh, uh, pursue some end or another, uh, they can become, and I think this is simply true in Mexico, have become so wealthy that the, in, the entire society, not the entire society, but significant segments of the society has stagnated, and there is little opportunity now for many people who live in the country to to, to become wealthy. So it, it's a it's kind of case. The the reason why so many people are trapped in poverty in Mexico uh, is not because there's insufficient freedom for individuals to pursue their own goals in the economic world. It's the contrary. It's because there's too much freedom, um, and and that has had the result of that's kind of a, a, an accursed share kind of reality that has the result of of ruining. Uh, economic mobility and ultimately freedom for individuals. So it's a curious situation you have in Mexico uh, where f- there's maximum freedom and we want that, but it goes so far and gets so spins so hard and out of control that it ends up destroying itself to a significant extent within the society. And we've seen a lot of reports of late, especially with some of the, or one of the presidential candidates, Donald Trump and his views on building the wall. Is this one of the reasons why we might have a lot of immigration from Mexico into the United States because of the large amounts of freedom and the accursed share which has brought about this emigration from there? I think that you know, it's curious. I hadn't it hadn't occurred to me. I think that's that's precisely right. That curiously, oddly, uh, the, one of the reasons, of course, it's just one of the reasons. Uh, there is so much migration from Mexico to the United States is not because there's more freedom here than there, but on the contrary, because there was more. There is still for those who can manage to get a little bit of money together. Uh, there's more freedom in Mexico than here, but there's too much. There's an accursed share of freedom in Mexico, and it ends up having the result of crushing. Um, opportunities for many of those uh, who end up crossing the border. But again, the, the curiosity is that it, it's because that they're, they're forced to flee, not because there's too little individual freedom, but there's too much. Um, and then I think something similar, you could p- perhaps move this analysis over to think about uh, the mortgage meltdown in, I'm thinking, was that 2006 or 2008 in the United States, uh, or 19, about now my years are 
run running away from me. But whenever the at the end of the uh, second Bush administration, there was the mortgage meltdown and Goldman Sachs was involved. And there was this abacus scheme where they were selling um, uh, monetized mortgages that they knew were or they believed were going to collapse. So they, they were selling them in the market so they could short them in the uh, short them on the in the market. Um, something like that would be an example, I think, of how kind of a pure economic freedom ends up throttling itself, where the system the, the system itself gets to the point where it, it, it undercuts its own reality, right? When you have uh, a place like Goldman Sachs, and this is the case with Abacus, right? When they were cutting up uh, mortgages and selling them, knowing that they were going to fail, and so they could short them themselves in the market, um, that's a situation where the entire idea of the investment bank that comes in on a, in a, in a, in a collapses itself from within. Um, it, of course, they were bailed out, but that's a different question. If they had not been bailed out, there would have been a, a collapse. And it would, the collapse would have resulted not from too little freedom, but too much. So when we talk about, just to wrap this up quickly, when we talked about uh, the equality side and wealth distribution, we talked about the different ways that equality could be um, instrumented in the world and what some of the drawbacks are to one or another way. And by contrast, now when we're, we've moved over, uh, you've, you've led us well to discuss now the idea of freedom, and we're starting to see that the problems on this side, on the freedom side, um, and, and wealth distribution, those have to do with uh, the question about whether or not um, freedom, which we want if we start from this premise, right? Uh, freedom can undercut and ruin itself um, by creating uh, wealth distribution, which is so imbalanced uh, that opportunities are lost, as perhaps exists in Mexico. It sounds very much like the quote by Hyman Minsky and something that we talked about in a previous episode with Professor Steve Keen and Greg Ipp, actually. Uh, stability creates instability. So it's almost like that freedom creates, I don't know what the antonym for freedom is. Well, I think the antonym would be, it would be either chaos Right. Or it, it, there are two antonyms. It, on one side, the one antonym of freedom is, is chaos, right? It's that you, you have no freedom because you have, you have, you have no control at all about where you're going. You're just thrown, being thrown wildly. And then the other antonym would be, uh, uh, some kind of version of incarceration or stability, right? Where you, you have no movement. So it would be paralyzation would be one antonym and the other antonym would be chaos. And freedom is somewhere in between there, right? Between those two extremes. If we have, based on the accursed share and possibly if we can link it in as you did uh, regarding equality and freedom, if we end up with too much of something or an excess of something, is there a possibility of waste and in a society, ideally, whether it's a theoretical or a a real society, is there a way of distributing that, what we feel is waste, obviously it's positive, and that could be put to use, that we could redistribute that to the, the, the those who are the poorest of the poor. And I, I know there is some phenomenon out there that has been based on what's known as potlatch. Right. And that yeah. we have seen before in, in the past. Is there a society that theoretically or in reality can represent this type of thinking and that would benefit all? I suppose there's solar power. Sorry, I suppose there's solar power. If we have solar power, I think in Germany, a lot of houses are encouraged to harvest their own energy from the sun. And anything that they have in excess, they put back onto the grid and they can sell it to the government or something who will actually buy or the the network will actually buy it back and redistribute it then. 
Yeah, I think that probably on that front, one thing that Bataille would want to resist is the idea that you would sell it back because the notion of the, of excess, as Bataille understands it, or the notion of a, an overabundance of, of freedom, it would be something that, this relates back closer to the idea of potlatch, something we, is something we need to get rid of without any recompense. Um, and, right? And, and so that's why we, that's why wars are so effective. Uh, in terms of the diminishing of wealth, when a nation is too wealthy, uh, or let's say two nations are, are, have excess, or they have too much wealth, uh, one very good way to eliminate wealth is just bomb each other, right? Because um, there's no recompense. You don't get anything back for it. Uh, so, so the, the task of, of a, of a potlatch society, and Bataille did investigate this, but because he is kind of like, uh, philosophy, he has a bit of a, philosophical streak to him, though he was technically a librarian, that was his business. Um, his, there, there is some question about whether or not the societies that he analyzed as potlatch societies uh, really were potlatch societies, and I, I am not sufficiently versed in the anthropology to be able to comment well on that. Um, but, but what we do need to focus on is this idea of if, if Bataille is right, then we need to find a way to extinguish uh, in the economic side, freedom or wealth, we need to find a way to extinguish that without recompense, right? Without getting any, anything back for it. Um, because if we keep getting something back, right, that just makes the machine worse. Again, it's, it's like cigarettes. We have to find a way, in a sense, to get rid of our cigarettes. Uh, if we, every time I give away a cigarette, someone gives me back two and I smoke those two, right, then my situation, my need for cigarettes is just going to, going to increase until again, I finally destroy my, my lungs. So that's the task of, um, on the excess side, that the, the task of freedom in, in the economic world is to, is to find a way to eliminate this excess, um, which is not, which is destructive, but not negative. Let's say, let's put it that way. James, is there anything that we as economists could learn from a philosopher or the th- teaching of philosophy when it comes to our own theoretical teachings? I know you do a lot regarding ethics as well, and that's something that at a principles level is quite absent, really. Well, I, th- I think that, I, 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 you know, I, the truth is I'm not, sh- I'm not sure that, the, that there is much there. I think that in a certain sense, ec- economics and philosophy slash ethics, uh, these are really two different languages um, in, in a way similarly that, that I've tried to begin to show in our, in our talk that um, the, the value or the, the discuss, the discourse, the logic, let's call it of equality is simply fundamentally different than the logic of freedom. And so when we talk about wealth and equality in terms of freedom, we have a different kind of debate with different um, resources put at stake than we do when we talk about inequality in terms of, uh, the value of equality, the desire for equality. And I think that something similar could be said about, about economics. I think that, that what's interesting perhaps is not so much how they overlap, but how, how different they are and how it is that these, um, these very different languages with very different presuppositions and very different basic references and very different fundamental goals, uh, how they can, what's curious is, is how, how we can relate to each other. Um, it's not what we have in common, but rather, uh, how it is we are, we are so fundamentally different. Uh, but there's some harmony, right? We're having this conversation. There is this harmony. So I think that, um, the, the kinds of things that, that I would like to think about there would be not so much what they have in common, but, but how, how they interact perhaps as things that are, are completely different, how they would affect each other, uh, but not how we could talk to each other. 
James, would you have any recommended books for our listeners that might want to expand or even be introduced to the, your type of thinking in terms of philosophy? Well, I think, uh, well, my type of thinking, I think that the George Bataille book would be quite good. Um, you know, curiously that one of the centers of, of the way I think about the, the, these issues, uh, Gilles Deleuze, uh, he wrote quite a bit about Marxism, uh, but he was, he was also part of the generation of, of 68 in Paris. Uh, and so the kinds of relation he had with Marxism was more cultural and historical than, than intellectual. Um, so I would recommend Gilles Deleuze highly, but I would recommend to not worry so much about his relationship with Marxism. I might say that it would be very curious to see. Uh, let's take this book, uh, Kafka's book Toward a Minor Literature, which is a very short book, an easy book, and it's about the way that Kafka works within a language distorted and create a new language, his minor language of his short stories. Um, it'd be very interesting to see how an economist could, say, take that book and those ideas about, again, the fundamental the fundamental idea is how can creativity work uh, and, and try to uh, apply that to some kind of economic question. For example, how does innovation work in economics? This is an example of what I tried to indicate, I think, somewhat sloppily before when I said what's interesting about philosophy and economics is not how they're the same, but how they're different. This is a concrete case of that. Um, what would be interesting to see is how Deleuze's idea about how a language can be created within a language, how that would apply to the economic study of how within, say, a marketplace, an established marketplace, how innovation happens. Is there some, in what ways, in what ways do forces move in parallel directions or in what ways do the forces not overlap each other? I think that might be kind of, might be kind of interesting. So if, if I were going to recommend, I would of course recommend Bataille's Accursed Share. I would recommend, um, uh, Gilles Deleuze and Kafka Toward a Minor Literature. And then another, uh, a book that people should look at. We haven't had a chance to talk about uh, Robert Nozick, but the uh, Nozick uh, book on anarchy um, is a good, uh, has some good chapters. It's a long book, but there are some good chapters there about uh, the ethics of freedom in the marketplace. Excellent. I just jotting these down and I'll put all those link, uh, books on the show notes page and also your own as well, James. Uh, again, if you visit jamesbrusso.net, that's B-R-U-S-S-E-A-U, you'll find a list of your four books, James, and a number of them are actually PDFs that people can actually freely download. Right, our, our secret, but yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it's out there anyway for those who are listening. And I'll again check out your documentary or your workshop on the wealth inequality, and you can find it on wealthinequalityworkshop.org. James, is there any parting advice that you'd like to leave with us? Because I always love to, when I get a chance to read uh, some of the philosophers and some of the deep thinking there, but some parting advice that you'd like to share with us. My advice is I've learned quite a bit listening to uh, the discussions you've been having with, with economists, and I hope that I've been able to provide some some spark of interest for people who are perhaps more interested in economic kinds of issues than philosophical ones. Uh, but my advice is to, to keep trying to repurpose right, philosophy for economics, keep trying to repurpose economics for philosophy, and so on. That would be my, my thought. James, thank you so much for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share it again with our listeners where they can find you. Thanks for having me, Frank. Uh, again, I'm at Wealth Inequality. Well, what we discussed here today was wealthinequalityworkshop.org. 
And you can find all the links, as I mentioned again, on economicrockstar.com forward slash James Brusso. James, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rock star. Thank you, Kurt. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com? where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. Right, well, it's good when you force me to ask those questions about economics. It does force me to see things a little bit differently. So it's, it's very enjoyable. Thanks again, Frank. Thanks a million, James. All the best. Thank you, New. Bye. You do back. <laughs>